This is Weekly Signals Interviews, broadcasting every Tuesday morning, 8 to 9, Pacific Time on KUCI 88.9 FM, Irvine, California, on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. In his new book, What the Heck Are You Up To, Mr. President? Jimmy Carter, America's Malays, and the Speech That Should Have Changed the Country, our guest today, Kevin Matson, gives us a behind-the-scenes look at the weeks leading up to Carter's Malays speech, a period of great upheaval in the United States. Matson is the Connor Study Professor of Contemporary History at Ohio University. He's the author of a number of books, including Rebels All, A Short History of the Conservative Mind in Postwar America, and has written for the American Prospect, Descent, The Nation, and the New York Times Book Review. Kevin Matson, welcome to Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me on. Well, and thanks for being with us. How are you doing today? I'm doing okay. I don't know if I can uh, outdo salt peanuts, as yeah. I said. <laughs> ah. but, uh, I'm doing. I'm doing quite well. Better than probably better than you all are doing in California. Oh, very good. So, well, you're, are you a Miles Davis fan, or uh, it sounds like well, you're that a would be Dizzy Gillespie? Dizzy Gillespie. Well, sorry, we yeah. were playing Philly Jones, but Dizzy and uh, and Jimmy got together for that at one point in time. Did you remember that? I, I remember it well, yeah, yeah. actually. Um, you know, in my favorite version actually is much more recent. It's the Joshua Redmond version. Oh, yeah. I, w- I was tempted to put that one on, but, you know, this one was a little bit more time. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. But Joshua, <laughs> I love, you, you like Joshua Redmond? Yeah, a lot. Oh, yeah. He's, he's fantastic. Yeah, I, he is. He just, just blows hard but has so much nuance in that. It's just incredible. I, Absolutely. I, yeah. Well, well, let's just talk about jazz and forget about this. <laughs> <laughs> I'm up for it. <laughs> so tell us. We're, we're talking uh, 1979. We're talking 1979. What was, what was going on in the country right then? Yeah, 1979 is a brutal year in American history. It's in some ways like 1968 or 1969. Um, Iran has had a revolution, and of course it's, first time ever to see Islamic fundamentalism actually taking over a country and, and, and instituting itself through government. And one of the things that it does is that it, Iran decides to cut its oil supplies, which creates an enormous uh, uh, you know, lack of supply of, of fuel in the country. And that's showing up in very long gas lines uh, in America in 1979, and very ugly and violent gas lines, I should point out. There were murders on gas lines. A pregnant woman was beaten in a gas line out in Los Angeles. Uh, it was it was really gnarly. There was also an independent trucker strike, and there were even full-fledged riots around uh, the uh, the lack of, of diesel supplies and fuel supplies for most Americans. America had also just gone through Three Mile Island, so nuclear energy as a potential uh, savior for the energy crisis wasn't looking all too great. And um, Carter had been doing a lot of diplomatic initiatives uh, throughout 1979 and was seen as something of a distant leader, someone who had connected to Americans and who hadn't, uh, to use Bill Clinton's phase, uh, phrase, uh, felt the pain of Americans on the gas line. So it was a time when the country seemed to be going through an incredible amount of violence and uproar, and it was also a time when the president seemed to be kind of distant from, from the uproar uh, in the country itself. And was, was he just, uh, what was the purpose of his speech? What was he trying to connect with? Did he, was he I'm sure he was conscious of, of his low ratings and everything was go- going on in the country, but was, was he trying to uh, bring people, was he more concerned with the politics or bringing people uh, together over the situation in the country itself? 
I think it's more about the latter. Um, there's no doubt he was worried about his poll ratings, and his advisors were giving him some pretty tough advice. Um, when he's abroad in June of 1979, just just so the listeners know, the speech itself is given in, in, in July of 1979. And when he's traveling abroad in June, his advisors are saying, look, you've got to get home. You've got to address this crisis that's erupting uh, in America. Now, for Carter, he had spoken about the energy crisis. In fact, you can see him as being pretty prophetic in the beginnings of his presidency. He says, unless we do something about getting off of our reliance on fossil fuels, we're going to have an energy crisis. So he had already kind of talked about the energy crisis on numerous occasions, and he was a little bit tired of talking about the energy crisis because I think he felt that it didn't do a lot of good because Americans just consistently um, wanted to preserve their way of life, which was to have more, you know, um, fossil fuel going into their cars and so forth and so on. So Carter was really nervous, I think, about the possibilities of making another energy speech because he felt that the American people had been tuning him out and he felt that he couldn't really um, get his points across. So he comes back exhausted after a number of diplomatic initiatives and he's pressured to make a speech immediately on the energy crisis. Uh, and they block out time, uh, Carter's advisors block out time on July 5th, and they say, um, you know, okay, you gotta, you're, you're, you just, you're gonna make a speech, you know, you're, we're gonna write it for you, you're gonna give it on July 5th. He goes up to Camp David to get a little bit of rest, he reads the speech that has been drafted for him, and he immediately falls asleep. And he says it's boring, it's dull, it doesn't go to the heart of the matter, it doesn't say anything about what's wrong in America, uh, and I'm not gonna give it. Yeah. And he announces this to his advisors, and he says, cancel the speech. And his advisors say, what? We've yeah. blocked out the radio, we've blocked out the television time. You know, this has never been done before. And he's pressed, and he's pressed, and he's pressed. And he says, I don't want to BS, and he says it in the full way, uh -huh. um, the American people anymore. And his advisors are just shocked, and they press again, and he actually hangs up on them. Uh, he then goes ahead and holds a domestic summit, and he decides throughout the course of this period of time that he can't just talk about the energy crisis. What he really has to talk about is what's come to be known as malaise in, in, the, in the popular lexicon, but which is really about what he, what he perceives to be a kind of civic crisis in America, uh, a decline in public and, and voter participation, a disconnect between citizens and their government, and a kind of uh, a narcissism and, and self-interest that is making it profoundly difficult for Americans to confront the energy crisis. So what he decides in the process is that I'm not going to just I'm not going to just attack the energy crisis. I'm not going to just talk about that because I've done that before. I'm going to talk about the civic crisis as much as I talk about the energy crisis. And that's what makes the speech um, I think so alarming and so jolting um, for for Americans who listen to it. Now, I just want to track back a little bit to the July 5th speech where where he says this is BS and hangs up on his uh, his advisors. It, was that something, uh, from what you know, was that something unusual for Carter to have done? Uh, or, or was he somebody that would, you know, uh, make a, a decision like that and, and stop in, in midstream and correct course? I think it was, I think he, he had, you know, uh, as, all, as all political leaders do, some, something of a gut instinct. Um, I think it, sh but it really shocked his advisor. So it, it seemed to be out of character, and it seemed to be ex extremely risky um, because, you know, what they were telling him was, look, it's, first off, it's never happened before in history that a, a president has the airwaves kind of locked up for his speech, and then you cancel with no explanation. 
never happened before. So if you're going to do that, which is what Carter was telling his people to do, you're taking a big risk. And so for Carter, I think that was pretty exceptional. Um, on the other hand, I think it went to the heart of something about Carter's personality, which is that as much as he was a politician and an elected official, uh, he was also uh, deeply honest. And he just didn't feel that um, giving the speech that had been presented to him really went to the heart of the matter, really really diagnosed the problem sufficiently. So he was just not willing to do that. That part of the, that part of the decision isn't that shocking. What's shocking is the ramifications of actually canceling the speech. And and that's where the title of the book comes out, because on July 5th, once people have learned that the speech has been canceled, the New York Post runs the headline, What the Heck Are You Up To, Mr. President? And scores of rumors start to spread, most of which insinuated that Jimmy Carter had absolutely gone crazy. Um, one reporter called the White House and said, so are you installing rubber wallpaper right now? Um, and that just gives you a sense of just how shaken I think a lot of people were by, by the cancellation. So it's both in line of some aspects of Jimmy Carter's personality, but it's also I think quite shocking and and amazing that he decided to do what he did. Yes, we're speaking with Kevin Matson. The book is "What the Heck Are You Up to, Mr. President?" Of, now we're we're now at July fifteenth. He's canceled on the fifth. We, we move up to July fifteenth. He he gives a speech. Oh, has the reaction of the media changed after the speech? Do they they see he doesn't need uh, rubber walls anymore? Yeah, it it does. People are surprised by the speech. This is one of the things that made me want to write this book because if you read the speech uh, or you and you can watch it on many sources online, um, Jimmy Carter sets out some pretty tough uh, lessons for Americans. He he you know condemns self indulgence. He says there's something really profoundly wrong with our consumer way of life. We've we we you know have become so private and self interested we can't consider the common good and the public good. So this is a pretty, this is what we would call in, in religious terms a Jeremiah. Um, and so it's a tough lesson. And yet what's really profoundly shocking in the immediate context of the speech is he gives the speech on July 15th, and for the first time ever, his poll numbers shoot up 11%. And not only do the poll numbers shoot up, but I've gone through the mail in the White House um, and looked at some of the phone call records, and he just gets this kind of massive amount of support from regular, ordinary American citizens. Um, the media at first are, are kind of taken aback by this. They're quite shocked um, because it is counterintuitive. If the president goes out and condemns the American people, we're going to assume that the American people would read it as they're being blamed for their problems when, in fact, the American people say, you know, he's got something... He, you know, he's saying stuff that's that's truthful and honest about the state of America. So the media, I think, um, is kind of taken aback, not quite sure how to deal with the fact that what would have thought to have been a, a, an unpopular speech actually turns out to be quite popular. Um, and, and then and then things change, as you can well imagine, yes. um, as we as we proceed up the timeline. But it was very po- it was a very very well received speech. And, and go ahead, Mike. No, go ahead. I was just going to say it, it's, it was presented as a, as a crisis of confidence speech. Right. How did it transform into the Malay speech? What, what are we talking about here? Is this another right-wing conspiracy? <laughs> Actually, it's not a right-wing conspiracy. There is a there is the media and and numerous op-ed writers and reporters start using the term malaise both before and after the speech is given. Now, the speech nowhere uses the term malaise, mm-hmm. um, but the media starts to use that term to describe the speech. What happens, though, more importantly, is you kind of 
take the timeline a little bit further into 1979, is that two people will announce their candidacies to run against Jimmy Carter, and after all, we're heading into an election year. And the two people um, are, are two people who matter in different ways. One is Ted Kennedy, um, the senator from Massachusetts who recently passed away, and he uses the term malaise in announcing his run for president to try to challenge Jimmy Carter within the Democratic Party. And he says, you know, Jimmy Carter has essentially, you know, believes that there's malaise in the country, and that's just not true. Americans are great, and so forth and so on. Now, the person who uses malaise to announce his own candidacy and announce his candidacy in November of 1979, of course, is the victor of it all, Ronald Reagan. He says, I've looked at to America, I see no national malaise. Um, you know, there's nothing wrong with the American people. Now, he's getting it then from both the left and the right. It's not, you know, just coming from the right. But there's no doubt that the right is going to be the successor with this stuff. I mean, Reagan is very, very good at realizing in 79 that he can pitch himself as the candidate of optimism, which I think is quite remarkable when you think of the way conservatives have appeared in the past. If you look at the way Richard Nixon appeared to Americans, he did not look necessarily like an optimist. If you roll it back a little bit longer and look at Ronald Reagan's biggest hero, Barry Goldwater, Barry Goldwater looked scary. He was, he was constantly scaring the American people. He, he did not look optimistic. He was, he was actually, in some ways, quite pessimistic about the possibilities of America uh, in 1964. But what Reagan does, I think, quite well is that he pitches himself as a conservative and someone who's an optimist, and he tags Jimmy Carter as the candidate of malaise, and he tags liberalism liberals in general, I think, as, as the party of pessimism. So the speech actually plays very well into, I think, in, in many ways, not knowingly, but in, in certain ways, into Ronald Reagan's um, ability to, to transform his own candidacy. This, uh, this, the phrase malaise has all the, uh, the markings of a Peggy Noonan, kind of this facile sort of uh, uh, cynicism that, uh, that she, I think she embodies. Um, and uh, I don't know if that's we, if if that actually came from her, but it does sound like the kind of stuff, the kind of dribble that would come out of uh, from this. And she was one of Reagan's uh, speechwriters, right. if, I'm, right. if I'm not mistaken. The, the person who does the most at this is a guy named Richard Worthlin, um, or Dick Worthlin, who's Reagan's pollster, right. who basically makes the case that that Ron, he he claims that when he heard the speech, that he knew that Ronald Reagan was going to win in 1980, which is uh, I think something of a leap. Um, he, he's claimed that he did a lot of research and polling into, into um, this question about whether or not uh, a, a president who uses negative language or uses malaise will be able to see, succeed, and he, and he says that he's tested this out. I, I kind of wonder if he really did that much testing. I just think that they figured this is the time to nail Jimmy Carter by saying that he's, he doesn't believe in the American people. Um, now, what you do in that process is you take this speech that they're working from and that everybody knows is what their, what their reference point is, and you basically, you know, turn it, turn it against the author of the speech right, or turn start, it against the deliverer of the speech. Start pull, pulling it apart, p- parsing it out exactly. in a way. Exactly. Now, um, I, I, I've always thought that one of the Reagan's uh, legacies, and I think it's a, a horrific legacy, is that he was able to meld the, the idea of American patriotism and consumerism as one and the same. That's right. I mean, I think that's already in some ways had been done during the Cold War. Um, Richard Nixon famously has a kitchen debate with Khrushchev where he, he, he show, in 1959, where he shows off in an ordinary American kitchen and says, look, you, you know, you, the Soviet Union, can't 
can't get this stuff, you know, and, and it's clear that the American way of life and patriotism uh, during the Cold War has been defined in part by consumerism. But there's no doubt that Ronald Reagan is, all, is kind of picks up on that strain and pushes it. It's very much this idea that, and it, it's peculiar. There, I think the, it's a patriotism uh, on the part of Ronald Reagan that doesn't require very much. Exactly. It doesn't require any sacrifice. It doesn't require any civic commitment. I think that was one of the key differences um, between yeah. Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan, is that Jimmy Carter really believed that citizens actually had to do something uh, in order to make their country yeah. better. In this case, they had to change their way of life. They had to, you know, rethink about whether or not they were going to have a, a, an unending amount of, of oil. Um, Ronald Reagan just simply said, look, we're great as it is. We don't have to, you know, have any challenges. We, you know, and that is, that is clearly, in my mind, having read a lot about the 1980 um, debates, that's clearly how Ronald Reagan, I think, in many ways wins this thing. And that's an easy message. And, and some would say, you know, it's, it's also probably a fairly winnable message. No, it, it is. And, and also, it's a, uh, it's a terribly short-sighted uh, yeah. message. Uh, and we're seeing the, the effects and ramifications of all that. I, I, uh, myself and, and Nathan uh, have spent many an hour railing on, uh, on Ronald Reagan and his effect, his, long, his legacy even today on this country and the, 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 the negative impact it's had. But uh, uh, Carter was asking us to actually be citizens. Reagan was asking us to go to the Walmarts. Right. Of the world. That's right. Yeah. No. That's. A, I think that's. A, I. I think that is completely and absolutely a fair understanding of of the difference between their their. I mean, if you want to use highfalutin terms, it was the difference between their political philosophies um, and what they expected of citizens and what they expected of government. And uh, yeah, I think in clear in my mind, you know, this period of time is when we take that turning point. It's 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 truly a turning point in our history. It's it's uh, a time when we have decided that you know Jimmy Carter's challenge to the American people, and and I'm not making an argument in this book that Jimmy Carter was a great, fantastic political leader. Nobody can make that argument. He he bungled a lot. Uh, and he did a lot of damage to his own reputation. But nonetheless, in, in, in the wider perspective of things, it's clear that America's taken what I would call uh, a very dangerous turn. Um, and, and in many ways, I think that's why people who come back to, to the speech, who listen to the speech, and who rethink Jimmy Carter's presidency, he's not looking quite as bad as I think he probably did throughout the 1980s. Uh, Jimmy Carter is, is the poster child for right-wing hatred. Um, if, there's any, if there's any president that is just you know, immediately mocked by conservatives, it's Jimmy Carter. And I, and I think precisely because you know, Ronald Reagan stands so important to, to the conservative movement. Right, because Ronald Reagan slayed this awful... Exactly. Yeah. This awful, exactly. uh, this awful idea that we could be citizens above consumers. Right. Uh, now, um, uh, there one last thing. Uh, I mean, from from my perspective, and that just from the naked politics, political side of all of this, Reagan aligning himself with the Chamber of Commerce and the and the and the people that were going to contribute to his campaign. He certainly that was a very shrewd political move to essentially say. Uh, then, I mean, to to that side of the equation, this is where you want to put your money. And, yeah, and, I, and, sure. and that's and that and that certainly was was an effect, was a factor in the race against it Reagan. was the other thing that's a factor in the race and there's no coincidence about this is that this is the first time that we're hearing about an organization called the moral majority and this is the the, the time in which the sort of Christian evangelical um, uh, you know movement is starting to become it's not a, as 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 strong as it will be in the mid 1980s but it's starting to get its footing during this period of time and there's no doubt that kind of Jerry Falwell's view of America as the 
the chosen people uh, as being blessed by God with divine mission, which he's very clear about saying, you know, just in, in, in the bluntest of terms, is also, I think, crucial to the way that Ronald Reagan can kind of pivot himself as, as having this sort of redemptive view of America, which is, is to take everything, you know, that's potentially wrong with America, just drain it out and say, you know, we're the chosen people. Yeah. Mm. Well, it, it's yeah. There's so much. I mean, we, Reagan is the Rosetta Stone for so many things that have happened to this country in the last 25 years. It just, uh, it's, 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 uh, and and his and the defeat of of Carter was so disheartening because it was so thorough. I mean, it was such a, uh, oh yeah, it was such a <laughs> you know, resounding. Before we yeah. let you go, uh, just a wild speculative question: Had people stood behind Carter? And had he been elected in 1980, uh, yeah. do you think this would have been a major change for the country as opposed to where it is right now? Do you think we'd be living in a different uh, USA? Would there still be solar panels on the White House? Yeah. Uh, well, there would still be solar panels on the White House. That's true. Um, it's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a difficult question. It's, a, it's really an impossible question because you're asking a historian, and no historian's going to, you know, go too far into the, the, the counterfactual. What's um, wrong with you guys? <laughs> <laughs> you know, here's, here's the problem, is that, you know, it's very clear, if, I mean, it's very difficult to imagine that the conservative movement that had been, I think, uh, gaining a lot of energy throughout the 1970s, um, and from the 1960s onwards, uh, it's very difficult to imagine that it wasn't going to have um, the success that it did. Now, the level of success of Jimmy Carter had stayed on for another four years, I don't know. Um, that's, yeah. that's really difficult. Um, the only thing that I can say is that it's very clear to me, looking back at it, is that this is the moment. This is, the, this is a turning point. Um, and that, you know, a lot, of, a lot of the turning point is not just about the, ascendancies, uh, the ascendancy of conservatism and, and Ronald Reagan. It's also the ascendancy of this sort of um, pie-eyed view of American nationalism, this sort of optimistic, we can do everything good in the world. I actually think that there's, I said this to one of Carter's speechwriters, you know, I think there's something of a, not a direct straight line, but I think there's definitely a connection between Ronald Reagan's view of nationalism and overcoming the Vietnam legacy and some of what I think got us involved in, in, in Iraq. Oh, absolutely. Now you open a new can of worms. I know. I mean, we're, that's right. Yeah. We need another half an hour well, we, right now. On, on the next show, we do a show on film and film. Uh, we're doing a, a, a documentary today. That Daniel Ellsberg's the most dangerous man in America. Oh yeah, sure. Oh yeah. And uh, and and just going back, just I don't want to go down this road too far, but how many American wars in the last half century have been started on the basis of a lie? The right. Gulf of Tonkin, the you know weapons of mass destruction. It just the list is yeah. really long and distressing. And uh, and Reagan, Reagan basically lied about a lot of the things that he got us involved in, in uh, in his presidency yeah. as well. The Iran Contra thing and all. Well, I for yeah. one wish Carter had been uh, yeah been in the eighties. I, I think I, I I think it's safe to say that of all the former presidents of my lifetime, Jimmy Carter is the the best example of what a what a former president should be about. Yeah, well, he's certainly, I think one of the things that I always ask looking at the speech is that there seems to be this real appreciation that he has of, of the, the lives of ordinary citizens and yeah, the yeah. ability to solve problems at the grassroots. Yeah. And I think one of, the, one of his biggest accomplishments after leaving the presidency is that he's, he's made good on that. I mean, he's really, he's almost become a meta-citizen just in terms of the, yeah. the, the, the grassroots activism that he's engaged in with Habitat for Humanity and, and also his, his in continued engagement in, in, in public discourse and and, uh, and about 
international and national. Yeah, issues. the Middle East and racism in America, right. all of it. It's just he's he really has been terrific. He's a, there's no disputing he's a he's a very decent and honorable man. Whether or not he was a good president, we can have a you know a discussion. Yeah. But he is a he decent didn't have political skills. That's the, that yeah. is that yeah. was his biggest deficiency. He didn't have political skills. He didn't know how to work Congress. He didn't know how to do those things. The real challenge of any future, I think, president, uh, including our present one, is the is the balancing out of of the moral vision with with some sense of political astuteness. And that was what I think, unfortunately, Jimmy Carter kind of failed. And that's what people can find out more about if they, when they pick up your, your book. And uh, what the heck are you, are you up to, Mr. President? Jimmy Carter's American malaise, and quotes, and the, the speech that should have changed the country. Kevin Matson, thank you so much for being here on Weekly Signals. Thanks for having me on. To learn more about Weekly Signals interviews, including upcoming guests, or to download the podcast, visit our website at weeklysignals.com. And be sure to visit nathancallahan.com for daily readings and feature articles. Until next week, I'm Nathan Callahan. And I'm Mike Kaspar. And this is Weekly Signals.